Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LAZA, the Latin American Studies Association. We have a great lineup today for you. I am joined by our section member and colleague, Leslie Armijo from Simon Fraser University in, in Canada. And we have two special guests from the Inter-American Development Bank. Andrew Powell, Principal Advisor, and Eduardo Cavallo, Principal Economist, both at the bank's research department. Andrew and Eduardo are the coordinators of this year's flagship publication, 2021 Latin American and Caribbean Macroeconomic Report, entitled Opportunities for Stronger and Sustainable Post-Pandemic Growth, which I encourage all of you to review on the IDB site. Welcome, Andrew, Eduardo, and Leslie. Andrew, perhaps we can begin by asking you to briefly outline the bank's scope of activities, its organizational structure, so everyone has a better idea of the bank's size, mandate, and main sectors of activity. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for the, um, the invitation to, to uh, be part of this conversation. It's a great pleasure to be, to be with you. Uh, I've actually been to a couple of lesser conferences, so it's a pleasure to, to do this. Um, so the Inter-American Development Bank was founded in 1959. Um, the shareholders are 48 countries, so it's owned by country nations. Um, and that's 26 borrowing countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and uh, 22 countries outside of Latin America, the non-borrowers outside of Latin America, including the US and Canada, but um, and many European countries and uh, also Japan um, and China and, and China and Korea being the two most recent members of the um, bank. Um, I believe it's the largest MDB in terms of its um, disbursements uh, in dollar, in terms of dollar flows to, to the region. Um, disbursements were actually a record level of $18 billion last year. Um, um, uh, that's from the IDB group as a whole. The IDB group includes the IDB, which is what most people uh, think about in terms of the sovereign lending, so it's a lending to, to governments, but there's also a very active um, group called IDB Invest, which lend to the private sector. And we also have a group called IDB Lab, which does more cutting edge type projects also um, to the private sector without what we call sovereign guarantees. Um, we have offices in each of the borrowing countries, so 26 offices around Latin America and the Caribbean with a team of a representative and a team of specialists in, in each uh, of those offices. Um, as you said, Eduardo and I are both in the research department. Um, we have about 20 PhDs, I think, in the research department at the moment. Um, and we produce, you know, the flagships of the bank. Um, uh, with our colleagues in other departments. Um, this year's, uh, last year's flagship was on infrastructure and this year we're publishing a flagship on trust. So it's on thematic themes. And then uh, we publish a, a macroeconomic report each year, which is the one you mentioned in the, in the introduction. Um, 
So we, the IDB lends to countries, to governments and to the private sector for development projects. Um, pretty much a wide range of, um, of, of, of topics from uh, infrastructure to health to um, education. Um, and, and, but, but virtually, you know, in every, in every uh, sector you can think of, of course, the priorities uh, vary depending on, on the particular country and, and the priorities that have been, been identified. Um, and of course, we work closely with the country um, authorities to determine what would be the most appropriate um, lending program and also knowledge program. So we like to think we're a knowledge bank as well. Um, and, and knowledge forms a, an important part of our activities producing the reports, but also, uh, and, and more academic papers, but also a lot of technical assistance in, in, in particular areas, which um, underline, you know, the more operational side of the bank, um, the lending side of the bank. Hope that's okay. Uh, happy to answer any follow-up question you might have. Uh, Joseph, we can't hear you. Sorry. So, Andrew, the bank will interact with civil society, for example, academia. Uh, how? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, no, great question. I mean, the, so we actually interact a lot with uh, academics throughout throughout the region. Um, we've done that since the, for the whole history of the, the research department. Actually, we have various ways of doing that. Um, but one interesting one is that a long time ago, actually 20 years ago, I would say, the research department came up with something that we call the Red de Centros, which is sort of research network projects, whereby, uh, and we fund maybe two or three a year on average. And um, we basically come up with a topic um, with a reasonably, you know, elaborated methodology, but, but, but also leaving many things open. And we, we publish that as a kind of call for proposals and we have a very good list of all the universities and research institutions in um, Latin America and the Caribbean. And so then they uh, propose uh, and say they wanna be part of this uh, research network. And they say, well, you want us to do this. Uh, we actually think you should do that. And make, you know, they make suggestions and improvements on, on, the, on the proposal. And it's a competitive process. So um, we get a number of proposals and then we select normally between six and eight from different countries. Uh, and we then pursue this research project together. And it really is a joint effort. It's, it's a very nice, it's, a, it's been an extremely fruitful product for us for, very, for many reasons. I mean, A, it helps us support research in the region, but also it's a sort of joint learning exercise uh, on the, whatever topic it is that, that's been chosen. And then those um, papers that have been are, are written as a result of that um, often come out as a book. Um, they certainly come out as IDB working papers. And in many instances, actually we've had special issues of academic journals that have, um, those papers have formed the, the basis of those um, special issues. Eduardo is actually running one at the moment on fiscal rules, so uh, he, can, he can speak to that. But it's been a very, uh, that's one way in which we interact with academics. It's been a very successful program over the years. Fantastic. Um, Andrew, perhaps you can give us an idea of the overall macroeconomic impact of the pandemic across the region over the last year. You know, tell us the, the real, uh, the bad news. 
Um, yeah, and unfortunately, it, it has been a, a really serious, um, well, obviously a human crisis and, uh, and also a, an economic crisis. Um, and the, the, the estimated loss in GDP is about 7.4%, which um, we've done some uh, historical work with, with, with some colleagues actually in academics in Argentina. And, uh, you know, we think that this is the largest loss uh, in it, probably in a, in a single year for the last 200 years. I mean, you have to go back to sort of the wars of independence to, to find losses on this magnitude in a single year. The 1930s, maybe the loss was greater, but over a three-year period. Um, so it's really a, a major crisis that, that has been provoked. And it's a very unique one um, in the sense that, you know, it was governments that went out and, you know, purposefully closed economies to try to stop the, the or at least slow down the the spread of the virus so so in that sense it's it's not really a, a normal crisis it's certainly not doesn't fit in with with normal crises and, and the analysis of normal crises um, obviously some countries were hit even worse than others the tourism dependent countries were hit very badly given the you know basically um, uh, no, you know the bans on international travel and so forth so so countries in the Caribbean the Bahamas Barbados Belize and Costa Rica and Central America as well um, all very very badly hit by the um, impacts on on tourism um, and unfortunately the, the you know the countries are in different positions but in general terms the war against the virus is still not really um, being won um, Latin America's had 23 million cases, cumulative cases, and 733,000 deaths now. Um, and, and, you know, the, it, the virus is still there, so countries are trying to open, but it's, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult proposition. And, and you, as you open, you run the fear that, you know, there will be um, new outbreaks. Um, I, I think the region did worse than most regions in the world, unfortunately. Um, LAC has, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean has about 8% of the global population, but uh, Latin America and the Caribbean accounts for more than 25% of global, global deaths. I guess there's many reasons that that could be, um, that people have, have written about. Um, uh, informality being, being high there on the list. Also, the, I mean, the worst strict lockdowns in, in most countries in the region, but but perhaps the enforcement of those lockdowns was not was not perfect. Uh, also, um, uh, the quality of the health infrastructure may, may be uh, lacking in some places, and there was poor testing and, and contact tracing efforts going on. And there's also a lack of infrastructure to to you know connectivity and digi digital digital infrastructure to for people to be able to to work at home. So I, you know, I, I don't, I haven't read any very good account as, as uh, trying to explain more precisely, but I think those are the factors that, that most people sort of have in mind. So it is a major, has been a major recession. Um, we're hopeful that growth is coming back and that countries will be able to open safely. Um, uh, the, I should say the IDB, we, we don't do growth projections per se at the IDB. We, we leave that to our our able colleagues of the IMF and the OECD and the World Bank and other places. Uh, the IMF is, is suggesting that the region should grow at 4.1% this year. Um, and there are certainly indications that, that, that countries are, 
are starting to grow, that the worst is over in that sense. But of course, you know, these projections are fraught with, with uncertainty. Um, and so there's definitely, you know, downside risk if um, largely related to the health crisis, if, if, um, uh, if the vaccine program, rollout programs are delayed or there are new strains um, which are more contagious and possibly some even resistant to, to vaccines, that, that of course would be a, a serious um, uh, problem. Uh, there's also some upside risks. I mean, I think, um, you know, China is, it grew in 2020 and may grow at more than 8% this year. And um, that's very supportive of commodity prices, which are, which, are, which are high. I mean, soya and copper in particular are now significantly uh, higher than they were pre-COVID. Um, so that, that benefits the metal producers and the agricultural producers in, in Latin America. Uh, oil prices are also, and they just suffered a little bit yesterday, but but still relatively have come back um, quite strongly. And we have a number of oil producers. And the U.S. is now, you know, uh, going to grow more strongly, I think, um, with uh, additional stimulus and so forth. So that's particularly helpful for Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean, assuming that uh, travel resumes and, and tourism and, and trade um, gets back on gets back on track. So, you know, there's a lot of risks, but hopefully the region is, is, is recovering. Right. Leslie, over to you. Uh, Eduardo, um, would you like to talk to us please about uh, financial flows, both public and private? And I also have a, a, a really practical question. The report itself, which just came out, covers data up till about when? Sure. So first of all, Leslie, uh, Joseph, thank you very much for, for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be part of this uh, uh, panel. And, and thank you for giving us the opportunity as well to, to, to present our, our work to, to your audience. So um, in, in terms of what has happened to uh, financial flows in, in the region, in the report, we tried to uh, analyze carefully uh, the, particularly what happened uh, during the peak of uh, the pandemic crisis, which uh, when you look at the data was in terms of financial flows was on the, on the second quarter of uh, 2020. So uh, as the pandemic erupted in early uh, uh, January and we started to, 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 to developments began to unfold and, and so on really the lockdowns and the and the and the and the, and the huge impact on, on economic activity uh, began to be felt around uh, March or, or 2020 and actually financial data uh, uh, is one of the first things, that reacts to those kind of uh, developments. And, 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 and if you read the macro report uh, from last year, which was published uh, around uh, that time, we were worried back then about what was happening to portfolio flows and the outflows uh, of capital from, from the region at the beginning of the crisis. Other institutions were worried about uh, that as well. You saw at the beginning, um, a, a significant impact on, on, on the region. On a region that is very sensitive 
to those uh, types of uh, situations because it has been the epicenter of uh, what we uh, uh, call uh, sudden stops in capital flows for, for many, many years. I mean, um, Guillermo Calvo used to be the chief economist at the research department of, of the IDB, and he's uh, credited for having coined uh, the term uh, sudden stop. Uh, it, 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 in a sense, it's, it's a preoccupation. It's an issue that started uh, uh, with, 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 with the crisis and, 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 and issues pertaining to, to, to Latin America. So, so, so when this pandemic crisis erupted and we began to see the financial flow uh, data, we, we were of course worried uh, about that. Now, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, in a sense, this was um, uh, reversed and most of the countries in the region were able to maintain access to capital flows, both from a private sector and also from the public sector. So public capital flows, meaning lending from institutions like the IDB, but also the broader multilateral institutions, IMF, World Bank, and so on, picked up quite significantly. And that was very helpful, particularly for the smaller countries in, in the region. And um, capital flows from the private sector were also um, uh, resuming and countries that had a, a good a macroeconomic uh, fundamentals were able to tap the markets uh, at the convenient range. So what you saw is that actually most of the countries were able uh, to um, avoid a, 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 a crisis as, 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 as significant as um, a sudden stop. Even though there were some sudden stops that manifested themselves in the region, they were short-lived and uh, uh, most of the countries were able to uh, come out of uh, that, that situation uh, fairly uh, quickly. During, during the year. There are, of course, several factors that explain that, but I would like to highlight uh, two. On the country side, it is very clear that countries that had stronger macroeconomic uh, fundamentals, lower fiscal deficits, lower levels of uh, current accounts, lower levels of uh, dollarization, higher level of reserves, were able to uh, withstand the, uh, the crisis better and had the more stable uh, capital flows. Uh, the other factor I would like to highlight is that the reaction, the policy reaction to this crisis at a global level was a significant increase in uh, liquidity. Uh, central banks were very active uh, during, during this crisis and that liquidity, of course, found also its way towards uh, capital flows uh, to the region. So that also certainly uh, helped. Let me push you just a little bit more. I, I was interested to read in the report the comparison between 2008 and, and 2019 um, on those uh, four things that you just mentioned, fiscal deficits, lower dollarization, foreign exchange reserves, and I forgot maybe yes. debt or something. Um, because, you know, you start the report saying 2019 was already terrible we can make the analogy to an airplane with a broken engine. Um, growth is terrible. And yet, 
if you look at that comparison, it looked like on three of the four um, things that uh, research says is correlated with uh, sudden stops, actually things were a little bit better. Did I, did I read that right? And so is this learning, is this fortuitous? Um, I thought that was interesting. No, you, you read it right, but let me, let me clarify. So to begin with, um, the comparison with 2009 in our view is uh, relevant because um, despite the severity of the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean were actually able to withstand that global shock fairly well. So you didn't have a, a repetition of say the end of the 1990s in, 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 in Latin America in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And when you look at why that was so is because most of the countries in the region entered the global financial crisis with very low fiscal deficits. Back then, we actually had current account surpluses rather than deficits, meaning that we were uh, generating more savings than what we were absorbing from abroad. And, 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 and therefore, we were net uh, uh, lenders to the rest of, of, of the world on, on, on average. Uh, we had high, very high level of uh, international reserves. And we had gone through a process that had allowed many countries to reduce the level of dollarization. So the fact that countries were able to enter into that crisis with very strong macroeconomic fundamentals proved to be a reason why they were able to withstand that significant shock uh, so well. So now we were curious about the same thing. So how did countries enter uh, this uh, crisis compared to how they had entered into the global financial crisis? And here is where the nuances start because uh, the headline figure that uh, you quoted uh, is of course an average in an average of a very heterogeneous region. And, 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 and heterogeneity within the region, I think has uh, even increased uh, compared to where we were in 2009. So some countries have improved macroeconomic uh, fundamentals compared to then. Many countries are doing uh, uh, worse than, uh, than, than they were uh, back then. And, and the interesting thing, I think, is that what we find this time around is that precisely the countries that had uh, or were more successful in terms of uh, withstanding on the financial flow side, this crisis better for those countries that had a stronger uh, uh, fundamentals. So you read that uh, right. I just wanted to make the clarification of how we did uh, that exercise and why we did it, and and and, and stress a little bit the, the conclusions. Now, our our our, re our listeners are going to be saying which countries. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are uh, as as Andy was uh, was saying in, in in his presentation, this shock has also been. Um, rather asymmetric in terms of um, who was hit and uh, why. It's not just all uh, fundamental. So we have, for example, these uh, tourism dependent countries where the shock itself was a very significant uh, because their main economic activity, their main export 
was uh, basically uh, affected uh, directly. So, you know, in, in, in those countries, it's a little bit uh, difficult to make the mapping between fundamentals and, 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 and the shock because just the shock was very significant. Then we had a group of countries, the commodity exporters countries in, in the region. We have countries that are heavy exporters of uh, uh, minerals, other countries that are exporters of oil, other countries that are exporters of agricultural uh, uh, products. Uh, at the beginning of this uh, uh, pandemic, uh, commodity prices were uh, significantly affected and that had a correlate as well on uh, flows uh, for many uh, of those countries. And then, for example, uh, um, some uh, non-very usual suspects countries like uh, Chile, for example, which is a country with very good macroeconomic uh, fundamentals in general, was affected by, uh, by, uh, by this uh, crisis and that could have been um, um, a reason. And then you had countries that uh, entered this crisis already in a, a weak uh, macroeconomic uh, uh, conditions. Some countries in the region had to undergo debt restructurings um, uh, even, 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 even sometimes before the, 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 the pandemic. And uh, you know, those, those, those countries, uh, of course, the situation was, uh, worsened or was made more difficult as a result of uh, uh, this crisis. So it's, it's very, very uh, hard to um, make a sort of a, 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 an assessment that, that, that will encompass uh, all. I will finish by um, highlighting uh, some, um, uh, uh, for example, you, um, we, 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 you, you had countries like, uh, Brazil and Peru, where you had for a period during, during this pandemic, a significant decline in, in, in capital inflows. Now, those countries didn't suffer a sudden stop because at the same time, you had a significant amount of repatriation of uh, foreign assets from Brazilian residence investors and from Peruvian residence investors that was able to offset that. And, and in a sense, that's a uh, a sign of strength of the economy that uh, during uh, a crisis like, uh, like this one, you had uh, this kind of uh, uh, repatriations that were able to, 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 to make uh, net capital flows more stable. Um, do you want to say anything about um, what is just hinted at in, the, in your report, but sort of different projects for making foreign debt sustainable. I mean, for example, um, you talk about, let's see, I learned some new language. You know, there's, there's reprogramming debt, which I think means pushing it out, which is different than restructuring, which means you take advantage of, of uh, paying off your old loans, I think, and borrowing at the current low interest rates, which is different than taking a haircut. And I've forgotten what the formal term for that would be. Um, I was reading um, Ann Kruger on, I think, Project Syndicate a couple of weeks ago said, well, debt forgiveness is all that the IFIs are talking about, but really that's not what's needed right now. We need, um, you know, developing countries need uh, assistance in kind. 
They don't need that. They need new money without strings uh, and so on. And do, do you want to comment on any of those debates? I, I can comment on that if you, if, if you like. Um, yeah, I think you, you were referring to reprofiling actually. So re, re, so yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are sort of like three um, things that countries could think about doing now. If one, one is sort of um, sometimes referred to as just debt management or liquidity management operations. So that's, that's essentially trying to refinance and take advantage of um, low interest rates or particular conditions that, that sometimes arise. No? And actually, um, the management of debt has become much more professional and much more sophisticated in, in Latin America and the Caribbean in the last you know, 10 years or so. So, so the, most countries have a specific debt management unit, and, and they've become really pretty good at, at these, kind of th uh, these kind of things now. And actually, the IDB, we have a we have a, um, a kind of a network of all the debt management units and we get together twice a year to, um, to talk about uh, prospects and so forth. So, so anyway, liquidity management or debt management is the first. Then uh, sort of second on the list is reprofiling, which as you pointed out, is sort of just essentially pushing out maturities. I think the IMF invented the term, um, I suspect. Um, so that's sort of like uh, pushing out maturities without any what's called haircut, without any capital haircut. So without any actual debt reduction, nominal debt reduction. Um, the evidence on reprofiling is somewhat mixed. So, you know, some countries have had some success with this, actually notably in Latin America, Uruguay was one of the earliest uh, reprofilers back in uh, 2002 and, and, and that was successful. Um, but other countries, it hasn't necessarily resolved the underlying problem. So uh, we have a number of countries like Belize and Jamaica that have reprofiled and re-reprofiled and re-re-reprofiled. So, you know, kind of, it um, you know, the, for whatever reason, that hasn't been enough. Let's put it that way. Or, or, or the country did not uh, combine that with other policies. Jamaica actually now is doing um, uh, much better. By the way, so that's a that's a that's a success story. Actually, eventually, um, a, a longer-term success story. Um, and then after reprofiling comes restructuring, which which does involve then a, a principal haircut. And recently, actually, Argentina and Ecuador both uh, restructured with 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 principal haircuts their their debt. Now, restructuring has proven to be quite difficult in the past um, to get creditors, you know, to agree. Um, and has provoked, uh, you know, court cases in New York and legal actions and um, and so forth. And, and you know, there's a big discussion about that. Um, it may be may have become slightly easier because now you have in in um, what are called collection action uh, collective action clauses, and there's actually a whole new generation of collective action clauses. So these are contracts in uh, the, these are clauses in bond contracts that allow for the renegotiation of bond contracts, which, which are a little bit more, um, I would say, you know, one way of putting it is it's a bit more debtor friendly. I mean, it's easier for the borrowing, the borrower to pursue one of these um, restructurings if, it, if it's um, absolutely necessary to- Not just allow for, it's, it's, if so many people agree, <laughs> you've got to agree, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a discussion as to whether, um, you know, the big discussion here is whether there's an efficiency gain or not. So, you know, you can say, oh, well, this is better for the creditor, so it's worse for the debtor, or it's better for the debtor, and then it's worse for the creditor, right? So, so it's like a zero-sum game. 
But other people say, no, it's not entirely a zero-sum game. There's a, there's a, there are efficiency gains here as well because there are these holdout investors. And their, their aim, I mean, the, the vultures, as they're called in common vernacular, you know, their aim is, is precisely to disrupt a restructuring. That is their aim. Um, because if they can stop the restructuring from happening, then they can uh, restructure uh, on very favorable terms. And, in, and indeed, that, that has happened many, many times. So, um, so you know, so some people argue that there's actually an efficiency gain for these uh, kind of clauses as well. It's not just a zero, zero sum game. Um, so yes, I mean, uh, you know, we we are hopeful. Countries are trying to walk this um, path between uh, supporting their economies and you know supporting families and firms during the crisis, um, but at the same time trying to maintain um, you know fiscal sustainability. And I think you know the majority of countries are, are indeed walking along that path. But but you know there are there are some cases where the crisis has been particularly bad, um, and 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 where there were pre-existing conditions. To be fair, in the case of Ecuador and, and Argentina, um, uh, there were pre-existing conditions. Shall we say? Um, you know, the, so the, the, these are the sort of last resorts that, that that countries may have to may have to go to if if you know if things go worse get worse. We're hopeful that won't happen, but you know, as I say, it's it's an uncertain world. So we'll see. I have more questions, but actually, I'd I'd rather save my time and use it for the later topic. So over right. over to you. All right, Leslie, did you have a question on on uh, multilateral institutions? Oh, right. I want to yes. do that later. So that's the next one. All right. So this is partly just a personal question of mine, but maybe one or both of you could weigh in. I mean, with respect to this crisis, and also more generally, how do you how do you see the de jure and especially de facto division of labor among both the among multilateral institutions, both the uh, development banks, that is, uh, you know, the World Bank and the IMF and the IDB and the CAF and maybe even the, the big national development banks. I mean, we can't ignore the Benedes in Brazil, I think, when you're talking about big development banks, but also these institutions that are not giving out money, but that are also shaping the debate, that are also acting as knowledge banks and as, uh, what shall we say, cheerleaders for various ideas. I'm thinking of CEPAL uh, in particular. But, but some others, even uh, I've been doing some looking into the, the work of the CLAF, the Shadow Financial Regulatory <laughs> Committee, which has, which has uh, promoted collective action clauses instead of the option of the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, um, which was being pushed by the IMF for a while or some people at the IMF. So, all right, the question is, how is this sorted out? Who does what? Um, well, let me have a first go at that, and Eduardo can jump in if he wishes. Uh, I mean, I think it's um, you know each institution has its own um, set of objectives and its aims, uh, and we collaborate a lot. So um, there is a lot of collaboration going on, you know, uh, perhaps behind the scenes, um, so to speak. I mean, the, the clearest one, I guess, is between you know the IMF and the multilateral development banks. That the demarcation is reasonably clear, right? The IMF's job is more of a 
I mean, its history is, you know, short, shorter term balance of payments crisis. Now that was its uh, raison d'etre. It's moved a bit beyond that to financial crises or uh, more, more, more generally speaking, but, but it's more of a crisis um, uh, resolution and uh, assistance institution. You know, of course, it's, it's involved in all the discussions as well about longer term development issues, but, um, and, and we collaborate and so the multilateral development are more, you know, on longer term development issues. But of course, you know, there's a gray area between the two where we collaborate um, very closely. And whenever a country signs a, an important IMF agreement, um, and, and, you know, there's an IMF program behind that, you will see in Latin America, you will see the IDB and the World Bank um, being part of that, um, because we will agree essentially, um, you know, the, the overall parameters of that. I mean, the IMF generally takes the lead, but we will agree the overall parameters. And then, you know, the IDB will provide financing and, and knowledge in some areas, and the World Bank will provide knowledge and financing in some other areas. Or, or maybe we even work together on some areas. Um, and, 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 and in fact, you know, we've, we've, we'll, we've worked very closely with them so there is a lot of collaboration behind the scenes. And we also collaborate a lot, you know, um, with CIPAL and, and, and actually the OECD has become more important now. There are more countries in Latin America and the Caribbean um, have joined the, ID, uh, joined the OECD or they're um, in the process of, of so doing. Uh, and that I think has been a very positive development. So again, we, we, we work um, and, and talk with our, our friends and actually we have done things, uh, several things together with the OECD. Um, and, and, and your point about the National Development Banks is, is a good one because uh, we also work with them. Actually, we, we have frequently lent money to <laughs> the National Development Banks. And, and I think um, that collaboration could be even more fruitful. Um, you know, we like to think that our uh, lending comes with knowledge. And, and, and so, you know, we can show things that have worked in other countries and suggest them in other places. And, um, and, and try to work on uh, a bit on the governance issues and so forth. So, so you know, we think that, that uh, we can maybe hopefully have a positive influence there um, as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on. That's the main message I, I would come up with. There isn't, um, I, I, you know, I can't really think of areas where there's been sort of a conflict, if you see what I mean. It's been, <laughs> that's, been, uh, that's been extremely rare. Uh, let's see. Um, I think you had a question about whether, you know, regional institutions have done enough, and if not, why not? <laughs> that was your <laughs> question that you sent us, which, I mean, we're, I mean, I suppose one, one answer to that is we're never satisfied, so we would always like to, like to do more. And, and I mean, the model of multilateral development banking is, is, um, is a particular one where we have a certain amount of capital that has been given to us by our, uh, you know, our member countries. Uh, and then we issue bonds uh, um, uh, on global bond markets. You know, we're one of the largest issuers of bonds and the World Bank is one of the world's largest issuers of bonds in the world. Um, and we, the major, the World Bank, the IBRD, and the major regional development banks all have all have a AAA rating. So that allows us to um, borrow uh, more and to borrow on very good terms, which we then can then pass on to our 
um, member countries in, in terms of low interest rates and long-term uh, long loans at, at, at very low interest rates. But of course, that means that we're constrained. There's a, there's a maximum amount of lending that we can do. Otherwise, you know, we will, the, the bond markets will, <laughs> will, will tell us that, you know, we can't borrow that much or we can only borrow at higher rates and, and we would lose our high rating. So there is a constraint which comes basically from the underlying level of capital. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, we dispersed $18 billion in 2020, but I don't think that's a sustainable amount. And we, we cannot disperse $18 billion every year um, with the current level of capital. So um, you may know that our, um, our aim is to try to get another capital increase at the moment to try to relax the constraint. I mean, we do think that we have more demand than there is supply at the moment in that sense. Um, and then, uh, as I think you also pointed out, um, you know, I think these areas of, uh, in the recovery to the crisis, I mean, the policy actions that countries are going to take is, is really critical. And, and the report is, is, has, you know, purposefully a set of pretty strong recommendations in some places, particularly on the fiscal, fiscal policy side. So it is going to be really important, the kinds of policies that, that countries now undertake to to, uh, in the recovery phase. So, so we do hope, you know, that we also have a positive influence in terms of uh, the policy, policy discussion. Speaking of that, then, you, you mentioned uh, this idea that, that, that social scientists float around every once in a while, which is sort of the, uh, the upside of crises. In other words, the idea that, that, that reforms that one has wanted to see for a long time and aren't happening, aren't happening, maybe have an opening during a crisis. And I will point out that one could make some arguments like that about US politics. Um, I wondered if either of you want to comment on that. Is, it is, do you see, I guess the question is, do you see um, this crisis focusing minds on some long standing issues uh, you mentioned some, you mentioned in the report, the idea that say infrastructure spending is chronically too low. Uh, public sector salaries are, I think the, the, the statistic you mentioned was about 25% higher than they would be for the same job in the private sector, things like that. Yeah. Maybe Eduardo wants to take that one. Yeah. So, um... To begin with, let me back up what, what you just said, saying that uh, there's actually quite robust empirical evidence showing that uh, during crisis, uh, there are also opportunities for a reform that can lead to a higher growth. There's a published work uh, showing exactly that uh, result. And of course, the reason being, or the theory being that uh, during crisis, it's a period in time when the status quo uh, which may be preventing the possibility of doing uh, reforms uh, sort of gets uh, broken and, and, and therefore that opportunity um, emerges. We think that that opportunity is around here now. That's uh, why we have titled also the, the, uh, the report starting with the word uh, opportunities. We, we think that the opportunities uh, are, uh, are there and we cover uh, a variety of areas where we think that those uh, opportunities are um, uh, 
prevalent and, and, and are really important. And let me highlight uh, three. Uh, so uh, there's a whole discussion, for example, about the um, global value chains, real value chains, and, and so on. This is a crisis where uh, one statistic that we put up in the, in the, in the report is that if you look at the, the US only, the US has uh, shifted or changed sources for their imports uh, as a result of this uh, uh, crisis in about uh, $56 billion. So uh, it's, 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 it's not that they reduced their imports in that amount, they changed the sourcing in, in that amount. Uh, well, Latin America and the Caribbean is very close to the, to the US and exports only about uh, $25 billion uh, uh, every year uh, to, to, to the US in, in intermediate schools. So, you know, in a period of time where you are trying to seek opportunities uh, in terms of uh, how are you going to uh, come out of this crisis or how are you going to uh, increase production and exports to be able to come out of this crisis, this uh, uh, change is something that the region can, uh, uh, can tap. And of course, that will require strengthening regional integration, will require working on supporting uh, exporters, providing them with logistics, with information, uh, with the tools that they need to be successful in that uh, endeavor. That leads me to the second opportunity, infrastructure. Infrastructure is really important, not only because it would be one of the elements that would, for example, support exporters in the region, but also more broadly because infrastructure is uh, really important uh, as, a, a, as, as, as a key intermediate input for the production of everything in uh, the economies. It's a critical uh, economic sector. Latin America and the Caribbean has a huge infrastructure gaps. We, Andy and I and other colleagues have worked on, on that. Last year's uh, 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 flagship report was on infrastructure and um, all of the information is, is there. There is an opportunity this time around, how can you do to increase investment in infrastructure in a context like this one? Well, on the one hand, you have fiscal policy. You have what we economists like to call expenditure switching uh, uh, policies. You can try, you know, without changing the overall level of spending to try to shift around the spending and do less of what we would call government consumption and more of uh, what it's uh, investment, which has a higher multiplier on the rest of the economy. There is scope, there is space to do that as we discuss in the report. Then there's the opportunity to bring in new actors into the financing sphere. Um, for example, institutional investors, pension funds, mutual funds, and so on, uh, invest a very small fraction of their portfolios in infrastructure projects in Latin America. There are several reasons why that is so, but one key reason is because we still have not developed the right uh, um, uh, 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 products so that they, financial products, so that they can uh, really include infrastructure in, in, in their portfolios. We have a discussion about that uh, in the report as well, together with other ways in which we think that the, the private financing of uh, infrastructure 
could increase in, in, in the region. And then the third issue I want to highlight is what we call sustainable infrastructure. You know, Latin America and the Caribbean not only has the economic challenges, Latin America and the Caribbean has made the commitments in terms of a reduction in uh, the emission of uh, carbon uh, in, in the context, for example, of the Paris uh, agreements on, on, on climate change. Well, for a long time, the discussion was, well, there is sort of this trade-off between the environmental goals and the economic goals. Well, in the report, we have a very nice discussion actually showing that that's a false uh, trade-off. I mean, investing in what we call sustainable infrastructure or green infrastructure is something that can be good for growth and good for the environment. So it's no trade-off. It's actually going to be good uh, uh, for growth. And how can that be possible? Well, it can be possible because a sustainable infrastructure or green infrastructure, if it's well-designed, well-planned, and well-implemented, can have the same or even better outcomes than gray infrastructure in terms of the services that it enable uh, to provide. And at the same time, by being a sustainable means that it contributes to uh, reducing the emission of uh, carbon, which is the critical element uh, to go towards uh, a net zero carbon um, economy. So uh, the, the report highlights this three opportunities, well, the report has, is, is broader, as, as you know, but, you know, for example, we have three chapters on, on each of these issues that I have just uh, uh, discussed, and, and, and we think that they should be part of the policy uh, discussion and the policy action, quite frankly, in, in, in the region for, for the years to come. We're, we're, we're quickly running out of time. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to very quickly touch on the issue of corporate resiliency uh, with Andrew and Eduardo, if he has a, anything to say, and then back to Leslie for the last question. So businesses in the region have suffered uh, traditionally from low level of productivity. Now comes the pandemic. And I just wonder how the bank views the general health of um, large, mid-sized and small companies. And to that uh, point, how does the bank talk to the private sector? How relevant is what the bank does uh, in, in the planning and uh, reflection done by corporate leaders uh, at all levels, all different types of um, economic activity? Well, yeah, thanks. I, I, uh, thank you for the question. I, I may have to leave after I've answered this one, so I'm sorry I have another meeting. Um, so uh, it's a very good question. I mean, I, you know, we've done quite a lot of work on productivity and uh, looking at firms and, and the dynamics of firms in, in the region. And it's very revealing, no? I mean, the, I think Latin America and the Caribbean has a, a long tail of small firms, um, which tend to be unproductive uh, when you look at their productivity levels. Now, you know, I think actually in this crisis, this might be, um, you know, kind of a, if anything, you know, may, maybe a silver lining is, is there in some sense, but I'm not sure, <laughs> which is the following, you know, that, that a lot of the small firms have very little capital, um, they're labor intensive, and um, 
and and they've been hit by this crisis. There's no there's no doubt. But they may actually end up being more resilient than you than than you know we think. That they may end up being the ones that also bounce back more quickly um, because they're flexible and so forth. Actually, Eduardo has, has written about this. Um, um, but you know, they, but they're also the low productive ones. So we don't really want them just to bounce back as they are. We want them to bounce back, but bounce back in a more productive way. So if we can try to find ways in which they bounce back, but become a bit more productive in the in the process, that would be a um, that that would be a, a major uh, contribution. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the larger firms, um, and, and there's a chapter in the report which focuses more on on larger firms. Um, it's it's very interesting because they, they've actually also managed to tap capital markets in a, in a significant way, um, like their governments, and they have gone out and borrowed, and and so issuance is actually really very strong through 2020, and so those firms, you know, went out to borrow, I, I uh, to to allow them to become more resilient, I think, uh, and so they've been quite liquid. They have investment has fallen clearly. So, you know, they haven't been investing the additional funds raised. So they've been keeping this as liquidity to, to face the pandemic. Um, so there, I think, you know, hopefully they, they um, and, and, you know, governments are, uh, are monitoring the larger firms closely because of course <laughs> they are, account for a large proportion of employment and so forth. And, and you know, we, we, we think that they are, uh, are reasonably resilient. Now, you know, there are then these uncertainties which basically depend on how long the health crisis lasts and also what reallocation effects that, that we see. And underlying your question, I think, is a sort of more structural one. I mean, it, it's clear that we need to improve firm dynamism and firm innovation and, and so forth. And those things have been very lacking in, in the region. I mean, we have this tale of small firms, but very few small firms become large firms and become very successful large firms. So understanding the constraints, why that is and why that hasn't happened, I think there's still a lot more work to be done. There's another chapter in the report which focuses on trade because, of course, um, you know, a lot of the firms, as they become more successful, are also involved in uh, either exports, imports, or both. And... Um, uh, and, and, and it's interesting because the large firms, you know, trade obviously fell and large firms... Um, have kept trading, but their trading has fallen, whereas small firms tend to go in and out. You know, they tend to be the exporters or not exporters. Whereas, like, so we think there might be costs associated with that. And um, because once you're out and you lose, you know, contacts with your suppliers, either foreign suppliers or foreign customers, then that might have additional, additional costs. So I think trying to figure out... Um, how maybe medium-sized firms can be more consistent in, in trading could also um, be an important uh, aspect to, for, further, for further work. Sorry, I really have to go now, but yeah, Leslie, you had a quick follow-up? Oh, no, I just, I wondered if one of you could say something more about, you talked about this platform connect something, something for uh, basically for helping small and medium-sized firms figure out how to export. That sounded like a very interesting opportunity and one perfect for the bank to set up as one of your networks. Yeah, that's been very successful. Connect Americas, I think it's called. It's, it's run by our colleagues in our integration department. We have another department um, uh, called the integration department that has, that has done a lot of interesting work on um, 
on these kind of things and also on trade agreements and, and, and many other things. So um, that's a very interesting product that they, uh, and I understand it's been very successful. Let me Andrew, off you go. say goodbye and thank you once again for kind invitation. And um, thank, thank you, Andrew. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Leslie, I think you had perhaps one last question. Yeah, um, I would love to hear more about regional integration. Um, I was intrigued to hear, to, to read in the chapter about global value chains uh, and trade, uh, a pretty strong statement saying, gee, global value chains are lovely, but they're dangerous because when there are crises and there are always crises, uh, crucial inputs don't appear, uh, markets dry up, et cetera. And so therefore, new argument, <laughs> we need more regional integration. I, I mean, I happen to think that has all kinds of interesting uh, political aspects, but it's interesting. It was like a new argument saying, given the way the world is working, um, regional value chains might be worth looking at. Now, before you answer, let me let me bring up the, what I understand to be this sort of longstanding objection, which is Latin American countries say, but we all trade the same thing, so how can we integrate in trade regionally? And besides, we don't have good infrastructure for transport. Yeah. Eduardo? No, great, great point. Thank you, thank you very much for, for that question. Actually, Latin America and, and the Caribbean has done a significant amount of effort in terms of uh, regional integration. And if you look at uh, the map of regional integration in uh, Latin America, you will see that you have several, uh, very, very, a lot of um, sub-regional trade agreements. So you have things like uh, Mercosur, you have uh, sort of the Andean Pact, you have a lot of uh, these uh, smaller uh, sub-regional trade uh, agreements that have been uh, big efforts that the region has made to try to uh, integrate with their neighbors and become a, a more a, a integrated in that in, in that sense in the in the sense to be able to facilitate a trade. Now, one problem that we have faced is that, and 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 and, and this is explained in 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 the chapter and in other and and, and more in depth in other reports that uh, that the IDB has put on on this issue, is that many times these subregional trade agreements do not speak to each other. So uh, some of the harmonization that would be required in terms of the rules and the policies that would facilitate, uh, uh, say, Mercosur dealing with uh, the, the, the Andean countries and so on, are just uh, not, uh, not there. I think we have an expression we have coined uh, at the IDB, something like the spaghetti bowl of a, a regional trade agreement, because there are a lot of things going on there and that have been uh, mixed. So uh, the argument is that we need uh, to um, work on uh, those efforts that the region has already uh, made to be able to um, strengthen and uh, pile them up in, in, in order to uh, uh, become a stronger uh, actor in the uh, global 
uh, arena. And the challenge for the region is integrating into global value chains, which has the risks that you have mentioned, but in a stronger uh, uh, way, being able to be more fully a, a part of those a, a, a value chains and not just a sort of a marginal a, a contributor a, to that. And I understand that there is this feeling that a, sometimes this is not feasible because we are all the same and we all export the same things, but that's just not the, the case when you look at the more granular data as the one we have uh, analyzed uh, for this report and which is presented in this uh, 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 chapter. Uh, Latin America has a great diversity in uh, terms of uh, the profile of uh, uh, exports of what's called the intermediate goods. Um, to uh, other uh, countries. We have uh, some countries that have developed a, a lot of expertise in, in, in certain industries that are key suppliers to say industries in Europe and, 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 and the US. Uh, it's not just all this idea that we are primary producers of primary products uh, and, and we only export a, 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 uh, unmanufactured goods. Uh, Latin America and the Caribbean has uh, uh, developed uh, 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 an, an industry uh, the, the, that is capable of uh, supplying the world. What we need is to improve the logistics, to improve the agreements, to improve the regulation, to help really those uh, uh, countries uh, realize the, the potential that is out there. And that's what we wanted to uh, highlight uh, in in the chapter of of, of, of of the report because that's 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 really an untapped opportunity for Latin America. How has how have these underlying um, uh, preconditions evolved in the last say twenty years since the turn of the century? I mean, yeah. for example, some you said yes, there are these different trade agreements, but but there are also studies saying, gee, they have more political aims. There's not that much intra-group trade. Um, uh, Ottaviano Canuto said, I think, in this forum, well, um, you know, the Pacific Alliance is more a branding exercise vis-a-vis -vis Asia than it is a trade agreement. Um, so any, I mean, I'm just pushing, I agree with you, but I'm pushing you. No, no, it's it's uh, perfectly, perfectly fine. You know, I mean, the certainly the development has not been um, sort of linear and, and steady. Uh, there, there has been back and forth. There has been back and forth within the agreements uh, themselves. Um, a case in point, for example, uh, Mercosur uh, started as a very ambitious project that was supposed to be a custom union between uh, the, the four founding uh, member countries, no, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Uruguay, and, um, Paraguay. and Paraguay. Uh, and, you know, over the years, given the, 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 the situation and the different realities that the countries were facing, the political issues and, and, and so on, uh, 
it has sort of degraded in terms of its uh, goal uh, from a custom union to, to to being more of a more of a free trade agreement between uh, these countries that it's not even that uh, free because it has a lot of uh, special regimes in between and, 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 and so on. So, you know, clearly uh, there were periods in, in time over the last 20 years when there was a higher impetus in the region and more appetite towards uh, regional uh, effort. There was a time even when uh, we were speaking about the free trade areas of the Americas, no, as a collective uh, global, uh, as a collective regional uh, uh, effort. And, you know, there were periods of time in which, uh, you know, countries started to look a little bit more uh, inwards and these efforts uh, have uh, 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 waned. So clearly, you know, it, it must be acknowledged that uh, the trend towards regional integration has not been smooth. It has not been steady and, and, and it's not like we started here and now we are here and we can measure the progress. It's been back and, and, and forth. What the region has to realize is that there's an opportunity over there because for example, the example I gave about uh, supplying to, to the U.S., the U.S. is supplying, uh, is, is changing suppliers uh, right now because of this crisis. Well, we are here, we are close, we have the capacity to uh, um, export those goods uh, that, uh, the, the, that the U.S. Uh, needs, and we just need to become more efficient in, in doing so. We need the government support in terms of the logistics, the information, the accessibility uh, uh, to markets. We need the policies that really support uh, small and medium exporters that maybe do not have the reach or the clientele or even the supply network to be able to tap uh, uh, those opportunities. That's a public policy issue, that's a, a, a concern that a governments should have and the focus should be how can we support our exporters to become stronger and better integrated to the global value chains to be able to realize the opportunities being cognitive, of course, of the risks. It's not, uh, you know, we, uh, the more integrated you are, the more open uh, you are, uh, there's, going to be, there's going to be things that are happening and crises that come and prices that go up and go down, but there are also tools to mitigate uh, those uh, risks. And, and, and we need to work on that so that we strengthen the opportunities and mitigate the risks. That's the challenge for Latin America. This is a great example of how time flies when you're having an engaging conversation with stimulating guests. Thank you, Eduardo. We've reached our time, but before letting you go, um, as you may know, our tradition here at EconoPolitics is to ask every guest for a recommendation in the region where some of our listeners either doing research or on vacation, hopefully, might be able to um, benefit from, uh, from your recommendation. So we've lost Andrew, but hopefully, Eduardo, you would have one or two um, recommendations to make in the region. Well, absolutely. I will have to reveal my heart uh, uh, here. I grew up in Argentina. I'm from Argentina. And you know, most of the people uh, that uh, foreigners that know Argentina, when they go to Argentina, 
Uh, they usually stay in Buenos Aires and, you know, they are marveled by the beauty of uh, Buenos Aires, the most European, we like to say, Argentinians are very proud of this, the most European uh, of, of the cities in, in Latin America. And, and all that is true, Buenos Aires is beautiful, but Argentina is a very broad and, 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 and big country. I myself grew up in the middle of the country in a province called Córdoba, uh, which is a beautiful province for those who have not uh, had the opportunity to, to, to visit this, the most Mediterranean country, in Mediterranean mean, meaning in the middle of the country, we have no sea, no, we are not, uh, 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 we don't have anything like the Mediterranean Sea there, but it's in the middle of the, of, of, of the country, it has beautiful landscape, beautiful mountains, uh, a very productive uh, area, uh, a lot of culture, that's where that's where uh, you know the base of um, uh, the Jesuit movement uh, uh, settled in 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 the region, and there's a lot of heritage regarding that. So for people who like uh, culture, who like uh, beauty, uh, who like uh, good food, who like uh, good humor, uh, uh, Cordoba is really the, the the place to 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 visit in in Argentina. I would strongly recommend all your listeners to next time they plan a trip to, to Argentina, make the effort to leave Buenos Aires uh, for a little bit and travel that beautiful country. If you want to start in Cordoba, that's great. And of course, then the rest of the country, the north, uh, the south. Argentina is a country that really in terms of tourism has uh, has has some some of the most wonderful beauties that uh, that that a country could hope for. So 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 that's my recommendation. Fantastic, Eduardo. We would like to thank Eduardo and Andrew for joining us today at EconoPolitics. We look forward to visiting you when next in uh, Washington, D.C., and having you on another LAZA event in the future. Um, thank you also to Leslie for co-hosting the program. You're a natural. Uh, thank you very much. And for everyone else, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, on the section site, and to subscribe, like, or send feedback. We look forward to seeing you all again soon. Until then, stay well, stay safe.